Each generation, through its trials and its triumphs, valleys and plateaus, provides a trove of lessons for the generations that follow them. The fight for equity is endless, always requiring us to innovate and preserve simultaneously. We advance by building on the work of those who've gone before us, and many of them are still among us to put us on game. Gen Activist is an intergenerational podcast presented by Rosa Rebellion, a platform for creative activism by and for women of color. We are setting a table for intergenerational dialogue and collective disruption. Imagine it as a historical digital archive remastered for contemporary use and permanent preservation. These are our stories told by us for us. So get hyped for your co-hosts. Rosa Rebellion co-founders Virginia Cumberbatch, myself, Megan Harding, and the matriarch of Virginia's maternal family and the anchor of this podcast, someone we affectionately call G-Mom, Dr. Sylvia Russo. Gen activist, yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Gen Activist Podcast. We are excited to invite you into another intergenerational conversation and today we have the honor of having the author and the founder of Black Liturgies, that Instagram account which has given life to so many of the feelings of Black people over this last year. And I know for me personally, when I could not find the words, so often Black Liturgies had the words. And so we're excited to have Cole Arthur Riley here. She is a writer, a liturgist, a speaker, and she's seeking a deeply contemplative life marked by embodiment and emotion. She's the founder and writer of Black Liturgies, a project seeking to integrate concepts of dignity, lament, rage, justice, rest, and liberation with the practice of written prayer. She currently serves as the content and spiritual formation manager for a center for Christian studies at Cornell University called Chesterton House. In her work, she produces and curates content to guide others into deeper musings and embodiment of the faith. We Hope that this conversation enriches you, whether you are of the Christian faith tradition or not. We talk about lament and the place that it has in the racial justice movement, as well as just giving words to what we are feeling and how important it is to allow yourself to process your feelings. We talk about dignity and black life and the Imago Day, And so we hope that you will be enriched by the conversation. Check it out. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Gen Activist. Today, we are so delighted to be in conversation with Cole Arthur Riley, who I have just been so grateful for her voice um, and for the space that she's created for many of us over the past year. A space I believe has truly given us permission to um, have righteous indignation, to be uh, have the right to be angry, to lament as we explore these conversations of racial justice and as we endure the ways in which black and brown bodies continue to be dehumanized and um, in some ways brutalized and then the brutalization to be viralized and I found so much solace so much peace in her words she is truly gifted with words and um, today for those of you who may not know we're actually recording this on the one-year anniversary of the death of george floyd and so i think it's really fitting that we get to just kind of reflect on the past year through the lens of black liturgies and so 
Cole, if you could just start us off by telling us a little bit um, about this platform and the journey of creating it. Um, it's been about a year, I believe, as we head into the summer. Um, and before you tell us about sort of the impetus and inspiration for curating this space, for those who may not come from the tradition of Christian theology, and for those who may not come from this particular tradition of Christianity, could you also define for us what liturgy means and maybe what it means to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so it's been, you're right, it's been almost a year since I began, I think like 11 months. Um, I started Black Liturgies last summer during a season where the world was processing a lot of Black death um, very close together. So we had Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, but then the re-emergence of the stories of Breonna Taylor and Elijah McClain, um, all of them victims to brutal murders. And like you said, I'm Christian, I'm specifically in the Episcopalian tradition, um, which has a lot of liturgical underpinnings. We have something called the Book of Common Prayer, which um, kind of sets out how we pray and the words we pray. Um, they're the same words that have been prayed pretty much for, for hundreds of years um, across time and space. And so part of that um, liturgical tradition and those written prayers, I find really beautiful and compelling just as a writer myself. I love that expression. Um, but I'm, you know, there are seasons where last summer being one of them, where I just couldn't stand to recite words written by a white man. Like I wanted God to hear it in my own words and to have space where my blackness could be really explored and held before God. Um, so that's kind of how Black liturgies came to be. And, and for me, or for, from how I understand liturgy to function in my life, it, it's a rhythm. It's, um, it contains prayer. It contains explicit prayers at times. But I think also uh, just the words, the words of our ancestors, the words of those who have come before us, poetry and song, um, all, all of that can be a part of liturgy, I, I think. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, we were talking before we started recording, as we always do, <laughs> and we were talking, and G-Mom um, was talking about how so much of just the culture in, you know, your traditional Black churches um, is liturgical. You know, we have our own rhythms and our own words and our own like language even mm -hmm. um, and how beautiful it is. Um, you know, you talked about inflection points, you know, and the summer being one of them and watching so many Black bodies be brutalized. Um, and it seems like sometimes we have these inflection points and but then they're kind of fleeting, right? And you have kind of people come in and they're like, oh my gosh, I get it now, what can I do? Um, but but then they just kind of go on while, you know, a lot of us, a lot of people who share our uh, melanin are, are still left, you know, reeling and really wanting, you know, change to happen. Mm -hmm. And I remember kind of, you know, I'm, I'm a PK, so, I grew up in your traditional kind of black Baptist church, went to revivals. I did, you know, vacation Bible school. Um, and then, you know, as I became an adult, I kind of was in the multicultural church space. 
And I remember, you know, after I think it was Mike Brown, after the killing of Mike Brown going to church and, um, you know, the church still kind of having this kind of upbeat, you know, mm -hmm. kind of what we call the Hillsong Cop, you know, mm -hmm. um, music going on. And knowing that so many of us who were black in the space felt sad, you know, we wanted a space to lament. We wanted a space to come and just pour out, um, you know, our sadness. And, you know, the church was really good about over time learning what that meant, right? But I think lament is something that black people do really well. Um, and so how do you think lament should be a part of kind of our social justice movements? Why is it important? Um, and then talk to us about how do you process? How do you heal when things like what happened this past summer happened? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree that the Black Church, the Black Church does emotion really well, including lament and is such a, I don't know, a, a beacon for, for those of us who are kind of trapped in spaces where we're being rushed out of our grieving. Um, to me, lament, is an honoring um the pra it's kind of the practice of naming what should not be and how that stirs you um which i think comes with this implicit naming of what you believe should have been what you believe a person or people deserve um and so in a lot of christian circles specifically white dominated christian circles um there is this rhetoric of like okay, lament, and then you can move on, to, but, but really the goal is to move on to hoping or some like positive emotion, maybe lament for a second, but then let's move on kind of. Um, and I think that's a really sad portrait. I, I don't think it's an accurate portrait of lament. When you really think about it, I think lament itself is a form of hope. It's saying, God, you promised this is what I believe should have been, and this is how it's not aligning with what I know um, my dignity deserves, what I know black dignity deserves. Um, mm -hmm. I think culture um, is part of that infusion that we have, that all people have, uh, as they come to God and as they come to build a relationship with them. And, um, and so, um, I mean, because culture is so much of our being. And so when we return to those expressions that reflect my being, uh, there's a nurturing that comes from that that you can't get anywhere else because it's not that there's something wrong with other people's uh, liturgy or their expressions, but they're expressions of a culture how they've through generations made meaning of their lives. And black people have had to make me, I think that's what's so strong about, we've had to make meaning in the midst of sorrow. Yes. Uh, and, and I think that's part of the richness of us. Yeah, so I can understand when you say, yes, you have an appreciation because there is a beauty in the worship um, of the, uh, Episcopal Church, I have a friend, Aunt Sarah, you'll remember, who loves going because of the, the beauty and the ritual. But there's sometimes that you, that's where soul comes in, where the soul <laughs> has to be nurtured by who we are. Mm -hmm. Thank you for giving us this insight into worship and liturgy. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
something cool that you know you spoke of before you know um that your expression right of this lament was through writing right and this idea of in some ways not performing the prayers or the words of white men traditionally right not because there was not power in it but because mm -hmm. it did not appropriately grieve what you were grieving it did not have the cultural or historical context of where we are and i think there's a reimagining happening within all cultural structures right where we're saying you know what we're no longer going to just perform in these spaces right based on expectations but we're going to infuse our lived experience in those spaces and it's what meg and i often talk about sort of the creative work of disruption as women of color to disrupt systems and the practices that we've been called to. And it really resonated with me. I think while everything that transpired over the past, I wouldn't say just year, but particularly those of us in black bodies, we've experienced over the last four or five years more viscerally than ever before, was the day that Ahmaud Arbery's story broke. And I think it really hit me hard because I, I live in Austin, Texas, which is a predominantly white city. And I recall the experience of hearing my mother be followed in cars by people who were questioning her right to be in those rich white neighborhoods, right? Being followed as she would go on runs or even me questioning my body in certain spaces. And I remember like, being more angry than I've ever been. And I woke up and my first thought was to write. And I wrote this article for our local paper and it said, it was just called Dear White Austin. And it literally was exactly as you described. It was this expression of my anger as someone who has, me and my family have given so much to this city and a calling to folks into this space. And so I wonder if you could kind of talk to us about how this platform has been used or leveraged as a way to invite people into the work of racial justice. I often think about Ta-Nehisi Coates was interviewed once and he says, I write to my people, Black people, but with the idea that the door is open for others to hear our conversation. And for some reason, that's kind of how I think about Black liturgies. Like this was written for me personally, Virginia Ashley Cumberbatch every morning but you have seen such a, in some ways, multicultural response to your work and your platform. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, and I absolutely wasn't expecting that. I, I wasn't um, very active in, on social media prior to Black liturgies really at all. And so, and especially not in the realm of like racial justice, racial awareness, racial dignity. And so starting Black liturgies, I had, absolutely no expectation for white people, other people of color. I mean, I called it Black liturgies pretty unapologetically. Um, and there was this point, I think, when I hit around 5,000 followers. Prior to then, I would say it was mostly Black people. There was this point where, for whatever reason, the switch flipped and all of a sudden, a lot of different people were engaging the work. And um, I get a lot of messages at least once a day um, which I find encouraging asking, is this okay? Is it okay for me to be in this space? Am I, am I okay here? Um, and 
I usually think that people who ask that question are probably aware enough that they can be in a space without centering themselves. Um, I never answer that question for anyone who asks me. I say, well, what do you think? What would, it, what would it look like for you to be in these comments, to be in the space of Black liturgies and to read a prayer and maybe find some identification and commonality in it, but to not primarily be thinking, this is for me and about my perfectionism or about my exhaustion. Instead thinking, what does this mean for a Black woman to be writing about anxiety or perfectionism? And just kind of to do that, the work of decentering, I think can be really beautiful. I have friends who think I'm a bit too hopeful about this, but I think liturgy can be a pretty profound practice of solidarity. You know, you hit a line, you read these words, um, in unison, the, the actual prayer parts are always we language, most liturgies are. So you're reading these lines and then all of a sudden you hit a line that just doesn't resonate with you. You're like, I don't know what that's like. I don't know what, I don't know what this liturgist is talking about. But you are in the prayer, you're committed to staying in the room of those words and saying, I'm going to pray this, even though it has nothing, it feels like it has nothing to do with me, but I'm going to believe it has something to do with me because our liberations are tied. So I, I can talk about this for a long time. <laughs> and there's definitely pushbacks you can make. Um, please do, but, please do. <laughs> But yeah, I think liturgy and this shared practice of spiritual words can be a beautiful practice of solidarity if people are ready to engage it in that way. Yeah, I think the idea of um, people having to engage things, especially white Christians, who a lot of, you know, this country has revolved around, not just, um, you know, even like our holidays and, and a lot of those things, you know, it's really revolved around them and their beliefs. And so having to decenter themselves, I think is a great practice of, you know, humility. It's a great practice of really caring for your neighbor, of grieving with those who grieve, mourning with those who mourn, um, even if you don't understand it all, right? And, and then figuring out, you know, really wrestling, me and Virginia always encourage people, you know, don't mistake discomfort with not being safe, right? So always understand, that you need to lean into that discomfort if you're really trying to really, you know, care for your neighbor and care for your brother. Um, and a lot of times we've done that, right? Black people, our whole life, that's our whole life of having to adjust and adapt and lean into, um, you know, discomfort because the world doesn't, you know, often make space for our culture. And I find that in kind of multi-ethnic, multicultural spaces, which are really culturally white often, um, and then they have other races in the audience, right? Um, but I think that in those spaces, uh, a lot of times it can be hard to get people to really kind of take that first step and to not just demand that people of color just adapt to um, their culture. And so I think liturgy and what you've done is like a great way to allow people to go into that space and also wrestle on their own, right? Without then making it the burden of Black people who, you, who the liturgy is for. Um, right. You know? I think you started this at a very important moment, and I would say a God-given moment, uh, because the nation was on pause. Uh, and dealing with its own pain, all of the mechanisms and all of the schemes and all the makings 
of the world, we were still humble before God and this uh, and his, his universe. And, and people were on pause. And I think maybe what you offered those people who joined in, it was a moment to join humanity because this has been our experience for a very long time of pain and suffering and oppression. And I think for a moment, the rest of America, particularly white America, had come to the same place where there's nothing they could do to work their way out of it, but that they were. And I think it was, it, it was really um, t humanity, it was a moment to acknowledge our humanity, to be humbled by our humanity, and to look how do I deal with it. Uh, and Black people have been dealing with us. So I think your writings were fortuitous. They were a blessing uh, to people who were looking for that. How do I, in this moment, make meaning of my life? I can't go out that door. I don't have control of food. I don't have control of water. Uh, and so it was a moment. And what I fear is that we are quickly losing that moment. There was a moment of shared humanity and your writings gave people a place, a safe place to acknowledge their humanity. But I'm, so what I'm asking you now is, um, how do you see us uh, moving out of that space? And you know, the black church is just, I thought so, actually, some of the liturgy and writings of the Black church touch with our Jewish brothers and sisters in the Psalms when you hear the lamentations coming from them. And that was kind of a connection. Um, but where do we go from here in this route that you are helping us find? Go ahead. Mm. Yeah, I think you make a good point. Of, and I, I feel it too about, um, the world kind of moving out, uh, we're moving out of pause. And I worry uh, the things that we learned or explored, the stories we engaged, how much they'll stay, like remain in us and with us. And I think um, I, I've really been thinking about this a lot with black liturgies and social media as an avenue to share um, really lends itself it has a lot of goods. I think it actually is a beautiful tool and can be a great exchange for art and artists and um, and feelings of connection when you're not in proximity to people like you. So I think it has many goods. I don't mean to like completely slam social media, but I think it also trains you toward a very short attention span emotionally uh, and in your daily lived experience, when you're scrolling and you just pause on something for a second, like how is that forming us to deal with like real tragedy that we encounter in the world and our lives around us? Um, it's a, it, they're apps that are made for compartmentalization and to be able to hold a bunch of, well, really not hold things together, but really catch and release kind of thing, catch and release, share and release, and then move on to, and I, I, I have a lot of, um, questions about how to share my work in a space that's not necessarily like that, like, mm -hmm. uh, not saying I would leave Instagram or Facebook or anything like that, but is there a way to share the work that doesn't require people 
to submit to apps that aren't made by black people, that aren't made for black people. The ag algorithms aren't working in our favor. Um, and it's actually deforming us and desensitizing people to our pain. Um, how do I find a different avenue to share? Make sure that there are enough avenues that it's not always submit to this process, this, yes. this, this cultural liturgy of yes. social media in order to gain something. Um, even you know Megan and I talk about this a lot because we both have a, a hate as it sounds you do too a hate love relationship with social media mm -hmm. like it is a powerful tool that I believe very much so has brokered and facilitated much of this this current iteration of the movement mm -hmm. right but it does create a sense of I think you described it as catch and release where it in it creates this dynamic where we believe the work is just there right we're not necessarily taking the work outside of our app right and so this performative piece of like well i, sh I shared something from black liturgies today right i shared something by this other activist i've done my job i have done my part to disrupt systemic oppression and racism because i posted on instagram or twitter and so like what's the work of calling people beyond right just um being consumers of our pain and consumers of this information. And I will just note, I, I honestly believe even a, my interaction with Black liturgies, I think there is something to the fact that you always post a carousel. So it requires like more than five seconds <laughs> scroll to the left. Yeah. And, and honestly, that has been, and the fact that you require, not require, but you invite folks into an action, even as small as inhale and exhale, um, I think is a really powerful way to just get folks to pause um, and reflect. And when you talk about the kind of fleeting nature and our attention spans, I have lots to say on that, that, that does not cover the subject of this podcast, but I have a lot of thoughts on that. I also have a lot of thoughts on the fact that everyone gets a microphone um, and mm -hmm. feels the need to rush to say something and what that's doing to our spirit, you know, and how we need to embrace slowness. And there's going to be things you might not have anything to say about because you don't have the depth of knowledge. And we all have the opportunity to be quiet. But social media, we have the same opportunity to just shut up. But social media encourages people to say something. There's yeah. this pressure. You haven't spoken about this. You haven't said this. You haven't done this. Or I don't want to be left out. You know, it's FOMO. And I think that that's dangerous. I think that that is disrupting our ability to not only just really think critically and think deeply about things, but connect with our, as G-Mom says, our humanity, our spirit, you know, really have empathy and compassion and sit with our feelings. Um, so I have a lot to say about that. I also um, am worried, um, to G-Mom's point, about people's ability to sustain their righteous indignation and the fight um and to also understand the fight is not because you posted that that's not part of the thing um, so so i'm i i i have a deep concern i don't know if you share this concern it seems like you do just around like what do we do to get people to actually sustain their commitment that they made when they posted those black boxes this summer which was strictly performative but you know what what how do we get that commitment to stand the test of time? Because we know 
that the fight for racial justice didn't begin with us and it likely won't end with us, right? We're gonna, this is gonna take time. And so, I don't know, that's a hard question. I'm not asking you for, for, the, for the answer, the capital A, but just if you have thoughts about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the end of what you said was a beautiful answer to the beginning of what you said about this. It, it didn't start with us. And the need, if we're going to sustain this, if we're going to sustain this, sustain this into the future, the need to actually travel back and to hear and, and bear witness to the stories of those who have already done the work. Like we're, we're imagination, there's a space for imagination, but I think it works and maybe this is too poetic, but I think it can work in both directions. It can work mm -hmm. by traveling back into what my grandma did um or and and to hear like oh this is what it looked like for you this is this is what you this is the strategy you had when you marched and gathered people's names and contact information so if anything happened you could call like these are mm -hmm. things that you did and when you travel back i think the stories about rise to the surface tend to be good stories they're rich stories of activism of justice work of rest and of honoring like those are the stories that persevere um, and they're not all that difficult to find, um, really. And when you travel back, I just watched, watched this clip this morning from a James Baldwin interview. When you travel back and you hear the pain, you hear some hopeful stories, you hear the pain, the rawness of that, it helps you to tap into the pain, the rawness of the present moment and want to like, mm -hmm. want to move out of that and not out of a performance, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, what you're saying is so important. First of all, I am a huge, huge fan of James Baldwin. Uh, back in the 70s, I was just, he just fed my spirit. Uh, and, but, but I wanted to build again on what you said about Baldwin, because I think he gave himself the permission to experience the pain. Mm -hmm. And writing had to be extremely difficult for him. But now I'm looking in 2020 and I'm watching all you young folks turn to Baldwin again. And that's the legacy we have. He left us, he left us such a great legacy and the words to express it and to express our pain, but not just lamenting, but lamenting with an understanding that when, as we lament, as we lament, we are also discovering what we must do as we are part of this world. And so I think we're so indebted to uh, James Baldwin. I wanted to ask you about another thing. So now that the pandemic is li uh, lifting and people are gonna be going back to church. So I, I'm curious what you're thinking and what we've been discussing and the differences among us in our various um, congregations and traditions. Um, where is the church now in the midst of this struggle? Now we know where the black church had been in the 60s. I was in it. <laughs> so uh, I know where they were. They would pray all night and get up and march all day. And the, I've said this in other uh, podcasts and they interviewed one little old lady and they said, Miss so-and-so, you shouldn't be out here marching. And she said, honey, my, my feet is tired, but my soul is rested. And I just love that. That's just always oh, such a powerful. But 
share with us where you see the church going, the church, not just churches, but the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not sure where it's going. Maybe I could share where I hope it's yeah. going. <laughs> where, what, what I hope is that the, the church is experiencing a kind of pivot toward those voices who have been excluded in the greater like big c church mm-hmm. conversation mm-hmm. um it, it, you know that's not to say that like the church at large hasn't taken things from the black church but it's just that it's a taking it's a uh-huh. taking and then using and then discarding <laughs> it's a taking using and discarding mm-hmm. so that it gains more it's like for itself it's not a beholding and it's it's not a protecting and i think i hope that the church is moving toward being very protective of those excluded voices and very aware that it's it's not charity it's not inclusion because of charity it's inclusion because if we do not begin to include marginalized voices, our spirituality is impoverished. It is an impoverished view of God. It's an impoverished image bearing. You can't take one aspect, one person, one sphere, you know, one hair from the face of God as we're trying to bear the image of God together. You you can't you can't take anything. Um, all of it is necessary. And I, my hope is, as we begin to realize, like, we're not including because we feel bad. We're not including because it's a nice thing to include Black voices. We're including because they need us to survive. We will not get free without Black liturgists, without um, Asian American liturgies, without the stories of the people who have really carried movements silently. Um, for a long time. I love your answer. Thank you. It's so good. I hope that the church finds its place in in the struggle for liberation, the Big C Church, and that um, they understand um, how white people are also bound by white supremacy, right? And how they're also hurt and how it's also an affront to their image of God, right? So that, that, they embrace a more holistic, a more accurate Imago Dei um, is what is what I truly hope for the church. You know, you mentioned Baldwin. We talk about Baldwin all the time. Literally, I, I watched umpteen Baldwin clips um, last week. And one of the clips that I love is actually a clip that G-Mom introduced me to where he's in conversation with Nikki Giovanni. And um, Baldwin says in that interview, he says, you know, if I do my work correctly, if I do my work right, I will be useful when I am needed. And how amazing it is that he is so needed right now and his words are so relevant. And even seeing him wrestle with his faith and wrestle with how faith, um, his faith intersected with what he was living through um, in New York as a young boy in the fire next time, you know, all of that has been as a, as a Christian person who is a racial justice fighter, who is someone who is, you know, an activist and an advocate. It's been literally a roadmap, you know, for me to be able to, to experience Baldwin. And I just wondered on a personal level, how your faith has informed your views of, you know, racial justice, gender equity, like any, 
any justice issue, right, um, of our time, like, how does your faith intersect with that or inform that? Because a lot of times people try to separate it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, you know, if you listen to one sect of the church, they will say, well, you would believe X, Y, Z, if you're actually a person of faith and you're devout, right? Um, but I do this work because of my faith. And so yes. I just wonder, you know, your thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think I mentioned this, um, but I, I wasn't raised in the church. So it wasn't until college that I began to, to take religion seriously, really. Um, and I'm very fortunate to have had my Christian formation coincide with my college education, where I studied writing and literature. Um, and for whatever reason, I was, I was just incapable of compartmentalizing my classroom awakening, where I was reading Morrison and Baldwin and, and Wright and Hurston um, from my spiritual awakening, you know, when I was reading Genesis and Isaiah for the first time. Um, it, it was like I couldn't really keep those two worlds separate because I was experiencing them both for the first time in college. It was one awakening. Um, so I would say really the two, um, my beliefs on God and my beliefs on race informed one another. It was a, a beautiful mutuality um, God was always going to be about dignity and justice for me. Like, I can't hear the word salvation without hearing liberation just because of the time. We invite you to close your eyes and enjoy this reading and meditation by Cole Arthur Riley in her own voice, directly from the Black Liturgies platform. Freedom and justice cannot be parceled out in pieces to suit political convenience. I don't believe you can stand for freedom for one group of people and deny it to others. Don't believe the lie that you must meet injustice with patience, that we must wait and choose our fights. There's no such thing as gradual justice. If all aren't free, it's still not justice. God of full freedom, We confess that at times we only possess imagination for partial freedom. Grant us wisdom, strategy, and policies that truly are for the liberation of all. We've been asked to settle and choose our fights. We've been led by those who meet the complexities of our pain with demands of patience. Help us to never become patient with injustice. Help us to never become so acquainted with the chains of this world that we accept promises of little by little. When we speak justice, let it be a desire no smaller than the love you have for us. Let it be nothing less than full cosmic justice, that every will would be heard and taken seriously, that we would never reduce our dreaming to what the oppressor deems as practical. Let us cry justice with an unapologetic awareness of all that we were meant for. Amen. Inhale, we were meant for freedom. Exhale, I will not settle for less. Inhale, I will not be patient with injustice. Exhale, God, please do not delay. Amen.
I had the privilege of being married to my husband for 53 years before he passed. And my husband was a pastor. And I, I know a lot of people have refined it and do it better, but we married very young. And my husband had this faith very young. In, in fact, it was part of what attracted me to him, but it was always this faith in relation to what I am called to do in the world. And so, and, and we made our share of mistakes, but this journey with my husband is probably the greatest gift I have in that I saw him constantly, you know, our home, my daughter once said, my husband took in the homeless, a part of our house was for homeless people and they could come and stay, get a job, save money, and then two months rent, they had to move out. So we were the center of that. And one time our doorbell rang and my daughter, somebody said, who is that? And my daughter facetiously said, oh, it's just probably a homeless person. You know, we're listed in the homeless directory. <laughs> so, but that's how intricately his pastoring. So when he came to pastor this church, they wanted to uh, buy a home for us in a more uh, upscale neighborhood. And my husband said, oh, no, my ministry is here. I live among the people I serve. Mm -hmm. So I think my husband was such a, um, and I tried to do that, to represent that in his home going. Uh, because my husband would go in the tavern down the street and meet folks, you know, been out there on the street. <laughs> um, but I tried with the music and the eclectic um, perspective of his ministry to represent that in his home going. So I had a mixture of music and types of people, but he was, I hope, and I think he was to our children and grandchildren of that. And that came to him early in life. I didn't have that. Uh, but you're so right. You can't separate this thing. You know, when Jesus says, I've been called, when he comes out of the wilderness and he said, he names what it means to, to be a Christian. And, but that liturgy you talk about is so important. That's what feeds us. Mm -hmm. um, it's so beautiful to, you know, obviously I'm biased on this podcast. This is my grandmother. So I, um, but you know, I'm chatting to Megan separately that, okay, tears are about to come because when I think about my grandfather, I think about that modeling for us as grandchildren, when we would fly out to LA for the summer and this, I, I would constantly think about my, the lens of my life, right. Was that there was no demarcation between who I was in my vocation, who I was in my skill set, who I was as a woman, who I was as a black person, who I was as a child of God. There's no demarcation in those things that they are all interconnected to make up my purpose, my calling in life. And so I think what you so beautifully captured, Cole, is our ability to truly walk as multidimensional people in this world, that our work as freedom fighters, our work as liberators are like God was the greatest liberator, right? For our soul and for our, our human capacity on this earth. And so I think what we have seen kind of be, as you said, reimagined in this past year is our ability as people of color to truly connect 
our understanding of our purpose in this life, right, with our own liberation, as well as those li the liberation of those around us. Mm -hmm. And so I would love for you to kind of walk us through what your personal journey has been in inviting folks that weren't maybe your intended quote audience, right, as we think about um, the onslaughts of vitriol and violence against the AAPI bodies, as we think about the ongoing distress and conflict in Palestine and Israel, right, that these are all connected to our faith. And I actually attend a church here in Austin that was um, kind of a, um, a, a beginning happened from the Chinese church here in Austin. So the majority of the pastors were Asian American and liturgy is the overall function of it. And I remember when I first got introduced to black liturgies, I sent it to my pastor. I was like, oh my gosh, you need to like introduce this, you know, into your own spiritual awakening. Um, and as we talk about James Baldwin, I also think about like James Cone and as a black theologian who those listening look him up and he talks about how Christianity in America has been both a space of healing and a space of oppression right and it's really who is holding those words right and so as we think about the ability for liturgy for our words for our understanding of God's love to be a part of not only our own liberation but the liberation of those around us how have you seen um, Black liturgy serve as that vehicle, serve as a tool to invite other people of color into that space? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I, well, I guess first I'll just name that it's, it's always really moving to watch words that you, you know, scribble down before breakfast and <laughs> I'm sure people just like cringe at the grammar and spelling errors and all of that, but to, to watch like the words that I consider quite, quite raw um, resound with other people or be a healing force in someone's life. Um, it's, I'm, st I still think I'm making sense of that. I don't think it's really hit me yet. Uh, maybe because I'm, we're in a pandemic pandemic and I'm still pretty isolated. Um, so I'm not hearing a lot of, of feedback in that way. But watching other people of color, other groups of color find inspiration and healing has been incredibly powerful. I have a, a very dear friend, he's one of my best friends. His name is Michael Chen, and he started a account called AAPI Liturgies. Um, and I, I've known Michael for a decade, maybe, or maybe shorter than that. But um, and he, in so many ways, and our personal relationship has been this beacon, this support for me, has held up me and, and other people of color and our friend group for so long. Um, I look to him as kind of a guide. So to watch him be inspired by Black liturgies to create something similar that really speaks to his face and his experience um, has been just so moving and important, I think. We just need more, more, more prayer accounts, <laughs> more truth telling, more people bringing their full yes. bodies before God together. I, I think you, so um, the journey you're on, and we never know where our journeys will take us, but the journey you're on is creating a pathway for humanity to come together 
with God uh, and that we walk this journey with God, to, but inclusive. And it just made me think about that part of scripture when it says God, um, when God created us and he breathed into us the breath of life. I think there's something when you're writing from your soul and others see it and it's genuine and it's honest, it's that common breath of life that we have that unites us. We just, you know, I, I enjoy reading my scriptures in French because I'm seeing ways of expressing the same soul thought, but in different dimensions. So I think there's something in us as a spirit I just want to say one more thing about my husband in relation to you. So I started reading people like Bonhoeffer and Kierkegaard and, and uh, even uh, John Henry Clark and Ball, all of those, um, and even Freire, because of my husband. He, he, his dimension is so much like what you were describing. He was reaching out for all of our humanity, trying to make meaning of life and juxtaposing it with the meaning he was making of scripture and, and the presence of the spirit of God in him. Boy, if we can just, I don't know how we bottle this, but you're helping us to get the language for this. And I just encourage you to keep this. People need this. This is, this is, our spirits need to be fed. Stay on your journey. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, Thank you for just sharing your journey with us so vulnerably and transparently. Um, and thank you for allowing yourself, your voice, your words to be a part, Megan described it as a bomb, like in, in this last year, um, to really create a healing space for many of us. And we're just, we're grateful that you allowed yourself to be used because I know that can be so vulnerable, um, putting yourself out there um, on this internet thing that we continue to wrestle with. <laughs> um, so just thank you. And thank you for um, accepting the invitation to be in conversation with us. And I just want to say to you, keep, you are gifted. Keep embracing the gift God has given you and it will bless others. And thank you so much for just this time with you this morning. Mm -hmm. Nicole, I hope that, you know, in all of this, you've poured out so much in this last year. And it, the fact that you do this daily just blows my mind um, and know that it's not easy. Um, to, to continue to show up on social media. Maybe it's cathartic to write it for you, but to have to do it in the way that you do it, I know is also, you know, um, a burden in some ways that you're carrying. And so one of the very big values of Rosa Rebellion is, is rest and restoration um, for Black people and people of color. And so I hope that in all of this pouring out that um, you have spaces that fill you up and you are also able um, to be replenished, um, which is what you've done for so many of us. So thank you. Thank you. And thanks for, thanks for naming that. Thanks for inviting me into this space. It has felt so sacred and I, I'm feeling myself getting emotional as I say this. I'm not entirely sure where the emotion is coming from yet, but um, yeah, I can honestly say this is the best podcast I've done. It's, <laughs> and I've been doing a lot of podcasts, but it's just been very refreshing to be looking at black women 
and trying to put language to something um to look at the faces of of three other black women and just seeing our faces together on the screen it um apart from our conversation which i think has been uniquely helpful and healing to me it's just been good that it's been us so thanks for the work you're doing and thanks for the work you're doing with rosa rebellion 